The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Reverend David Warren in the elevator this morning, he said, how's the preacher for today? I said, pretty good, but running a little long. When I used to teach homiletics, when I used to teach preaching in the seminary in Austin, Texas, we would have time limits for the student sermons and uh, so that we could fit them all in during a classroom hour. And occasionally a student would come in and say, I, I just couldn't, professor, I just couldn't make it within the time limit because the Holy Spirit laid so much on my heart this week. <laughs> well, I'm going to use that excuse today. For the next three weeks in a short sermon series at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, we are going to talk about God and war. We're going to focus our attention on the resources embedded in the Christian faith that help us interpret and respond to incidents of state-sponsored violence. The immediate impetus for this conversation are the questions that many of you raised after the United States killed an Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, in a drone strike on January 3rd of this year. The larger context, of course, comes from perennial questions that people of faith raise about the ethics of war and the moral pillars that we might stand upon in this violent world. All of this is to say, for the next three weeks, we are going to consider questions like, what are people of faith to make of modern warfare? How are we to evaluate violence that is perpetrated by our state and by other organized states, caliphates, and shadowy groups? Does God ever endorse violence? What is the appropriate Christian response to cycles of violence and revenge? What sort of ethic does Jesus call us to embrace? What does it mean to be a pacifist? What should we hope for and work toward in these precarious and violent times? Now these questions will prompt complex and potentially contentious conversations, but that's no reason, of course, to shy away. It's actually encouragement for us to push on. The church must weigh in on complex and contentious issues. It must engage 
not out of an arrogant, we have all the answers posture, but to provide an old school model of what the gracious public square might look like. In other words, it's incumbent upon us as people of faith to step out from behind our little screens and to put some skin in the game, to be willing to encounter different perspectives on violence and war up close and personal, to be courageous enough to discuss important issues with, fasten your seatbelts, real people. We're going to do exactly that here on February 9th. After worship, two weeks from today, right after this service, two weeks from today, we're going to gather for lunch, and Reverend Dr. Charlene Han Powell is going to moderate an event at which we share stories about war and peace. So put that on your calendar now. My friends, we cannot allow the most important moral issues of our time to be decided by tweets. We have to go deeper. We have to do our research, study our history and tradition, broaden our perspectives, and then tell our stories. This is how the Christian faith has always shared its unique witness. We do not accept the systems that are handed to us as if they are the norm. We seek to move the needle on issues of concern to all humanity. This morning, to start us down this path, we're going to consider one of the most common ways that God is portrayed in the Bible as a warrior. What does this image have to teach us? How might it inform our discussions? To tackle these questions, I've selected three texts for this morning. To be clear, there are dozens of possibilities in the Bible, but I think these three passages flavor the stew in some interesting and provocative ways. So let us listen now for God's word as it echoes to us, starting with the book of Exodus. Chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. I'm going to read through verse 10. I know it says that you've got through like verse 12 in your bulletin, but you don't. You only have through verse 6. So bear with me. At some point, I'm going to run off the page here. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed Gloriously, horse and rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Second reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 27, beginning with the first verse. On that day, the Lord, with his cruel and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. On that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, I guard it night and day so that no one can harm it. I have no wrath. If it gives thorns and briars, I will march to battle against it. I will burn it up or else let it cling to me for protection. Let it make peace with me. Let it make peace with me. And finally, from the prophet Hosea, in this passage from chapter 11, we hear God speaking to Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I, I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I, I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks, I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not Again, destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, I was one of those kids who built military models. 
Beginning at about 12 years old, I built model airplanes, model ships, model tanks. I crafted the implements of war downstairs in the basement on my dad's workbench with tweezers and tiny gray plastic parts and the sort of liquid cement that was deemed toxic around the time I turned 15. <laughs> Any aspects of the sermon that annoy you, I blame on that glue. <laughs> My best friend Sean and I would play with P-51 Mustang planes and the battleships that we built until they would begin to fall apart and then we would take them out in the backyard and give them a military funeral by blowing them up with strategically placed firecrackers and shooting at them with pellet guns. We were fascinated by war. Our favorite part of history class was talking about war and, and considering the tactics of war. We, we played Avalon Hill board games. Many of you have never heard of Avalon Hill. Victory in the Pacific, Blitzkrieg. We watched old war movies full of bravery, but surprisingly little blood. The Great Escape, Where Eagles Dare, The Guns of Navarone. I read novels that, that, that followed soldiers through the theaters of, of World War II. I was particularly taken with submarine conflict, up oh, periscope. As I grew older, though, war began to take on a less and less rosy glow. Slowly at first, but picking up speed when we hit 17, Sean and I began to see more and more realistic war movies. And something began to dawn on us. War has got to be the messiest, most awful, and most morally questionable thing that humans have ever invented. War twists the truth. George Orwell's 1984. War is horribly absurd, Joseph Heller's Catch-22. War saws away at our sanity, apocalypse now. War is carnage on a scale that we can scarcely fathom, Gettysburg. War is one debilitating, dehumanizing moral crisis after another, platoon, full metal jacket, sniper, take your pick. War is friendly fire, war is collateral damage, war is an ethical quagmire, war is futility, brutality, and mendacity, war is PTSD and substance abuse, broken bodies and damaged spirits. War is a place where evil gets to run rampant, sucking hope out of the world the killing fields, and yes, precisely because of and despite all of these terrible truths, war also provides opportunities, rare chances for people to do brave and honorable and selfless things in the midst of a hurricane of insanity, stupidity, carnage, and evil. Glory. 
Saving Private Ryan, 1917. For all these reasons, wars stand out as markers in human history. They define us. We chart our way through the centuries with wars and the time between wars. You cannot understand human history or American history without looking at our wars. Vietnam, Korea, World War II, the Great War, the Spanish-American War, the Civil War, the War of 1812, the Revolutionary War, King Philip's War, the political events leading up to these wars, the manner in which these battles were fought, the costs exacted in lives, in human potential, in grief, in economic loss, is beyond our ability to calculate. And yet, these are the events we use to tell our story, the human story. We're forever looking back on the last war and preparing for the next. We flutter around war like moths drawn to a flame. Chris Hedges, a journalist who has spent extensive time reporting in war zones, describes the powerful allure of violent conflict in his gripping book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Hedges writes, the enduring, the enduring attraction of war is this, even with its destruction and carnage, it can give us what we long for in life. It can give us purpose, meaning, a reason for living. It, it allows us to be noble. And those who have the least meaning in their lives, the impoverished refugees in Gaza, the disenfranchised North African immigrants in France, and even the legions of young who live in splendid indolence and safety in the industrialized world are all susceptible to war's appeal War makes the world understandable, a black and white tableau of us and them. Hedges writes convincingly about the appeal of war and hauntingly about the adrenaline thrill that comes from being in a combat zone. Ultimately, though, he concludes that no one emerges from this unscathed. Violence, Hedges writes, Violence is a disease, a disease that corrupts all who use it regardless of the cause. Violence taints us, all of us. No matter how noble our intentions, human beings who engage in violence, who are the victims of violence, who sponsor violence, who cheer on the use of violence, and even those who stand against state-sponsored violence are all touched by it. Violence in this world drip, drips battery acid on our mental health. It cracks the lens of our moral compasses. It rends the fabric of human society. Violence unspools us. The insidious power of violence to destroy far more than buildings and bodies is not the only thing that can or should be said about war. 
still as Christians, as those who worship someone who was nailed to a cross in an act of state-sponsored violence, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we must begin by acknowledging this difficult truth. We must remember that at the heart of our faith is one who stares at us in the midst of being tortured and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words, I think, still have the power to convict. Jesus compels us to ask, have we become such comfortable bedfellows with violence, so willing to see it as a given, as inevitable, as, as a necessary evil, as God help us entertainment, that we no longer realize the extent to which we serve its voracious appetite. They know not what they do. Christ's words hit frighteningly close to home. Have we become so cozy with violence that we actually don't know what we're doing or realize how far we've fallen down the rabbit hole? Last week, I reached out to my friend, the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, and I asked Walter to help me interpret the frequent descriptions of violence that we find in Scripture, all the battles being fought, all the, the blood being spilled. Now, on one level, I get it. The blood covering the pages of the Bible makes sense. All you need to do is to look at a map of the ancient world to figure that out. Israel lies square in the path of every military force moving up and down the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. The national armies of Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and eventually Rome all passed through Israel. Jerusalem was repeatedly besieged, burned, and occupied. In that region, war was a constant. For hundreds of years, war was a constant. So naturally, the people who lived there wrote about war and wondered about God's place in this war-torn world. Still, I asked Walter, well, how are we to understand God as warrior? Now, before I tell you how Walter responded, I want to step aside for a brief discussion about Revelation. This is why these sermons get so doggone long. <laughs> Simply put, we have to pause for a minute and ask, what exactly is the Bible? Is the Bible a collection of ideologies and theologies that come from people who lived a long time ago? Is the Bible a historical document authored by people who were embedded in a context dominated by war and warriors? Or is the Bible somehow a revelation, an unveiling of deep truths about who God is and, and what God wants of us? Now on this subject, the good professor and I agree. Scripture is a complicated blend of both these things. It's a document written by real people, people embedded in a complex and sometimes quite alien to us social context, people who are searching for and encountering God's truth. Now, 
where does the grimy history part of the Bible end and the crystalline pure revelation part begin? Well, honestly, sometimes, maybe even most of the time, it's pretty darn hard to tell. Can you shift the eternal grains of truth from the historical chaff in the good book? Some people think they can. Personally, I would rather than start pulling out all the threads in Scripture that I think have nothing to do with God. I think we're better off if we step back and look at the broad tapestry that the Bible offers on a subject like violence and war before we plunge into the individual stories. And this takes us back to Professor Brueggemann. According to the good doctor, God is clearly and frequently portrayed as a warrior in scripture. But the key follow-up question here is what sort of warrior? In the story of Exodus that we read this morning, God is an emancipator. God the warrior frees people who have been enslaved. God then stands between the fleeing Hebrew people and a mighty army that seeks to return them to bondage. This warrior God uses violent means to stop the Egyptian pursuit. The Lord shatters Pharaoh and his chariots, horse and rider, pummeling them with huge waves and hurling them to the bottom of the sea. Exodus has its fair share of bone-breaking violence. And that raises a whole set of questions for us. What's going on in this corner of the good book? Does this story have the potential to guide us and ground us? Does Exodus tell us something true about God? Some say no. They quote the Temptations 1969 Motown hit. You knew this was coming. War, ugh, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Come on, people. Work with me here. There are those who earnestly and honestly think Christianity would be far better off if it were to scrub stories like this from the Bible in the same manner that we have scrubbed militaristic hymns from our hymn books. These folk believe that humanity's best hope is if both we and God were to swear off violent ways. And we're going to talk more about that important perspective next week. For the moment, though, I want us to stay with Exodus because I think this story interacts with all sorts of critical questions about violence that are bouncing around in our heads. Questions like, what happens if the other side chooses violence first? What are we supposed to do if there are innocents at risk? What if the moral character of our country is at stake? What if all other efforts have been exhausted? What then? What counsel does the emancipating warrior God of Exodus have for us? Do you know which American war was the bloodiest, the costliest, 
in terms of casualties and economic loss. Thank you. Who, who said it? So you're right. It was the Civil War, 1861 to 1865. Over the course of those four years, the unprecedented violence of the battles at Shiloh, Antietam, and Gettysburg shocked the entire world. Roughly 2% of the population of the entire country, an estimated 700,000 people, lost their lives in the line of duty. The total number of deaths from every other war fought by Americans does not add up or exceed to the number of losses this country incurred in the Civil War. The social impact rippling outward from these losses was enormous. Hundreds of thousands of widows and orphans, entire towns and swaths of this country would face economic hardship for decades to come. Many historians argue that there's been no more traumatic blow to this nation's economy, psyche, and soul than the Civil War. And yet, few would argue that the Civil War was pointless or futile. While many issues contributed to the start of armed conflict between the states, at the heart of the Civil War was an ethical question. Is it a moral thing for humans to own other humans? And in the late 1800s, many of the faithful saw the parallels between American slavery and the story of Exodus. Let my people go. Those advocating for abolition... People like Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave and powerful rhetorician, called on President Lincoln and others to use force to end slavery. They made this plea based on ethical and religious grounds. The human heart, Douglass said, is the seat of constant war. It's a place where we find the eternal conflict between right and wrong, good and evil, liberty and slavery, truth and falsehood, and the glorious light of love and the appalling darkness of human selfishness and sin. Julia Ward Howe also believed that the Civil War was a sacred conflict. In writing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Howe pictured people fighting alongside Christ, the warrior Jesus from the book of Revelation, who treads out the wrath of God and defeats the powers of darkness. The glory, glory, hallelujah, Howe repeats in the chorus of that hymn is nothing less than the light of heaven dawning in this world. It's, it's this world becoming a little bit more like the world God envisions. What are we to make of poetry and rhetoric like this in service to violence? Are Howe and Douglas so desperate to justify their side in a human conflict, that they're willing to risk asserting God's on our side. Human beings are pretty good at making claims like that. Almost every army that's ever marched, including the Army of Northern Virginia, went forward with the assurances, with the belief that God was on their side. This fact alone should make us cautious. 
It also happens to be the subject of next week's sermon. When it comes to war, whose side has got on? So we're not going to go there, not yet, but we still have some ground to cover. I want to return to surveying this broad tapestry that scripture weaves when it comes to God and violence in order to see how it might guide our hearts and our actions. And in doing this, I want to make three fairly quick points and then be done. Point number one. The Bible describes God as a warrior emancipator, a powerful figure who stands up for the downtrodden. Texts like Exodus remind me of the words that J.R.R. Tolkien, in the context of World War II, put in the mouth of Faramir, one of two warrior brothers fighting against terrible odds in the Lord of the Rings novels. This is what Faramir says. But I think you could imagine many a British soldier with these words in his mouth. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. This is the God we see in Exodus. It's also the God we see in Isaiah. While scripture frequently pictures God participating in various conflicts, it, it also makes clear that the God who wields, and I quote, a cruel and great and strong sword against the forces of chaos is the same God who walks through tranquil vineyards longing for peace. God, the emancipating warrior, is also the lover of peace. This God with the strong sword is the same God who promises to teach humans how to pound swords into plowshares. In this, in holding God's love for peace together with God's aspect as an emancipating warrior, Isaiah's passage reminds me of the veterans I know. My father served in the army, my father-in-law in the navy. Over the years, my work in the church has brought me into conversation with so many veterans, some of whom have served in active combat, some of whom have been chaplains. These individuals, men and women, do not harbor romantic illusions about violence. If anything, they hate war. They know it to be every bit the chaotic mess I described earlier, and yet they are simultaneously committed to protecting the innocent and to serving in conflicted circumstances with dignity, integrity, and honor. Point number one, our tradition holds up the honorable warrior and sees God as an emancipating warrior. Point number two, God grieves violence and the way we use God's name to justify violence.
Last week in my conversation with Walter Brueggemann, he said to me, Scott, I've developed a little thesis that God is in recovery from violence. God is in recovery from violence? What does that mean? It sounds almost blasphemous to suggest that God is in recovery. To elaborate, Walter suggested I look at today's text from Hosea. Now, Hosea is a fascinating part of the good book. The prophet Hosea is a critical fellow, and among the targets of his criticism are other prophets who are willing to embrace violence in order to accomplish their goals. In today's passage, we listen as God speaks about walking with people in love. God is strolling along with people, tending to their needs like a mother. God picks up an infant to kiss it and feed it. This, Hosea says, is how God walks among the nations. But then, of course, the inevitable happens. The nations sin. They ignore God's commands. They worship idols. They attack each other. They become addicted to violence. This violence, God points out, is often supported by priests, clergy who are scheming to gain power for themselves. The world is a mess. And, and this is usually the point in the Bible where we can expect God to open a can of well, violence. This is typically the sort of situation that, that, that stirs up the wrath of God, that has God thunder and declare that people will soon face punishment at the hand of some reviled enemy or at least endure a, a few plagues. But, but, but no, not in Hosea. In Hosea, God pauses. God hesitates. God struggles and God ultimately resists the path of violence. Listen again to this passage. This is an amazing passage. My heart, this is God speaking, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I know we don't like to think about God changing the divine mind, so if it helps, imagine that Hosea is trying to change our minds. I think Brueggemann's right. God is stepping back here. God is wondering aloud whether violence is the right solution. It's a remarkable moment in the Bible. It's why I love scripture so much. Point number two. God is critical of violence and our attempts to justify violence with religious words. Point number three. Point number one and point number two are at odds with each other. <laughs> this is annoying, <laughs> but it's also okay. This is the paradox that God puts in our laps. We have to hang on to both perspectives. Perspective one, God is a warrior who will pick up a sword on behalf of the innocent. And point number two, God, war is terrible. Violence ought to be avoided. 
and even God seems to be rethinking violence as a solution. As people of faith, I believe we need to hold on to both of these truths. Because both of these perspectives, God is a warrior and war is terrible, exist within our tradition. And we need to hold on to both perspectives because they represent competing goods in the world we live in. They are the poles of a moral dilemma that is worth our continual exploration and prayerful reflection. This is the balancing act we must walk. We need to bring our best, most righteous, most protective of the innocent endowed, trodden, most peace-loving selves to every situation and then to weigh that situation in the balance of our faith. This is tricky work, but it is the work we've been given. Instead of deciding how we feel about some conflict and then sticking to our guns, no matter what evidence confronts us, we need to keep watching, keep talking, keep praying. Toward the end of the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, a CIA officer played by the pitch-perfect Philip Seymour Hoffman cautions Charlie Wilson, a U.S. congressperson played by Tom Hanks, not to be too sure that they've done something glorious in arming the Afghan rebels in their fight against the Soviet Union. To make his point, the CIA officer tells the story of a Zen master who observes the people of his village celebrating a young boy's birthday gift, a new horse. It's a wonderful thing, the people say. We'll see, the Zen master says. When the boy falls off the horse and breaks his leg, everyone in the village concludes that the horse is a curse. We'll see, says the Zen master. War then breaks out, but the boy cannot be conscripted because of his broken leg. Now, everyone says, the horse was a fabulous gift. We'll see, the Zen master says again. This story describes the predicament of the thoughtful Christian. We constantly must reassess what it means to be faithful to speak faithfully, to act faithfully in this violent world. This may seem like a precarious perch, but this, my friends, is our calling. We must cling to competing goods and trust the guidance that we will receive from a God who is both a warrior courageously committed to protecting the innocent, and a peacenik worried about the efficacy of war and violence. This posture is not, I believe, nonsensical or silly. It is the path of faith. And I truly believe that it is out of this posture that we can hope to do the least harm and perhaps the most good in our brief span on this planet. 
March forth from this place in truth and peace, trusting in the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 646- Four nine one eight three three one. Thank you and God bless.